This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the full ride on the chase thomas podcast i am still the aforementioned chase thomas up here in knoxville tennessee down there in dacula georgia mr matt green fellow university of north georgia alumni go nighthawks matt good evening sir how are you yes sir good evening I don't, I don't know how many times I got to tell you about that Dacula stuff, all right? You know, we uh, we take that personally down mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. I uh, I got yeah. confirmation that my Camden County helmet's on on the way. It's in route. You, you got a Camden County helmet coming? <laughs> that what is are you a talking deep, about? That is a deep cut for... Um, oh, is that your, your boy Bob Spire? Yes, that is correct. He uh, He had it shipped out today. Oh, nice. You know where he's going? Uh, I do not. I know, because he left Camden County, right? Did he? was at North Gwinnett. Wait, no. Yeah, I think he like just left like this offseason, I'm pretty sure. Oh, shit, he did. Yeah. He stepped down. Oh, my goodness. He stepped down on the 4th. This was two weeks ago. Did not know this. Oh, he went back to Kentucky. Yeah, I remember just here. he's going back to Kentucky. Is that what you said? Yeah, he's from Kentucky. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, old North Connecticut. North Connecticut coach Bob Spire. Getting a shout out on the pod. Friend of the pod, right? He is a friend of the pods. He's a good dude. That guy knows so much about offense. He is such a interesting guy because he, he worked on that Kentucky staff long time ago. He knows all those guys. He studied all those guys. Like he studied the Mike Leach air raid. How mummy? Yeah, he knows all those. Like he. That's what he came up on out there in Kentucky. So like he was uh he was ahead of the game when it came to um modern day offenses. Like he he was a trailblazer. Yeah, North Gwinnett. They also had Dennis Rowland before him. He was like a air raid how mummy guy too. North Gwinnett. They're on the map, man. Big okay. time big time football program. Well, it's not like a part view high school. Like that's when you're at when you're like a part view, that's when you really, really get there, but um no, it. Uh, oh man, it, do we have to break the the sad news, the Parkview news? Uh, we don't have to go there. I know what you're talking about now. No, oh we, man, that was your boy. I know Parkview guy going to Tennessee. Like he was. That was that was your guy right there, Cody Brown. I it it's not surprising. I uh, I had Coach Godfrey on last week on the podcast, and. Um, yeah, it's based on our conversations. Not a surprise that um, he was released from his letter of intent uh, this week from mm. the University of Tennessee because ultimately, the longer this drags out, the longer uh, there is uncertainty when it comes to the sanctions and what's coming for Tennessee. It's just, I don't know. It's really hard to keep these guys. And it's also just not fair. I just think you should auto 
automatically get it uh be able to release um guys like it he signed on for Pruitt and Jim Chaney and Jay Graham and T like that's who he signed on for and uh they got let go really late in the process so you know I I don't blame any of those guys for being like yeah that's not why I committed to you in the first place right yeah I mean everyone tells these kids oh you don't you don't commit to the coach you commit to the school it's like well Mm. when all of these schools have elite facilities and you know just dope everything you could want as an athlete it's like you're what separates them it's the coaches obviously like that's that that is who you're committing to ultimately the guy who's gonna who's gonna be coaching you yeah i um i don't know this was also just not a good week for the the athlete versus um university conversation i saw a lot of responses on both sides with uh is it jalen johnson from duke who opted out this week i want to say his name is jalen johnson yes he did and it's what are, all about what the are your thoughts on that? Okay, so in the interest of full disclosure, Matt, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that I saw your thoughts on Twitter.com. And okay. I, because that was something I was scrolling through my feed and I saw that, like, I don't really tweet out my own personal thoughts all that much on Twitter. Um, it's just not worth it to engage and get in just awful back and forth. But um, I will say, I think two things can be true. I think uh, Johnson leaving this late in the season um is an ex- it, it it still qualifies as quitting on your team. However, I don't know what Duke's players feel about it. Like I'm I'm curious to know what Coach K cuz Coach K didn't really want to play the season. Remember like Duke's women's team already canceled. Like they canceled the rest of the season. They're out. Um and he's a first round pick. He wants to get ready. Like his circumstances is different than the ninth guy on the team. Um I understand that line of thinking where it's just like, "Oh, I saw the Florida kid." Um Kante Thompson go down and that was really scary. And um, I, I'm sure that weighed on a lot of athletes minds. And this is um really tough times. And from what you read, most of these kids have been pretty miserable um, going through this process the last few months and being in the bubble and being so isolated and just doing basketball and online schoolwork. And um, I can understand that perspective. Uh, people getting worked up on both sides, but then people go way overboard where it's like, this is what the non-paid stuff, like the job stuff. And then we go full um, <laughs> over the top of like, if you have any kind of criticism towards this athlete, then you're wrong. And um, you're part of the problem. This doesn't qualify as quitting, but whatever. Like it's not, I don't think it's necessarily like we, we care way too much about the, the adjective we use to describe what happened here. I'm more curious what his teammates think, what Coach K thinks. Um, I'm surprised more kids didn't do this, to be honest. And also, the circumstances are different um, for first-round draft guys. Like, they have more to lose than other guys. Um, And that's just the way it is. And um, I don't know. I I go back and forth on this. But ultimately, it's about the team. And if the team kind of knew or if all of them are miserable, which – like I said, seems like it is the case. Um, I don't know. I just, I have a lot of thoughts on it, but people who it, you're not going to believe this, Matt, people went hard one way, hard the other. And I was just like, Oh, we can't, we can't do this. Like the people who definitely logged on to sports radio this week, he quit on his team, blah, 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 blah. And then they're like, what a, th- this is unacceptable. This is awful. And then there's the other side of like, pay all the players. They deserve all the money. And this is why they should be classified as employees. And well, like <laughs> there's no middle ground. The conversations are just, I, I can't, I can't do it. I don't enjoy them. And I don't enjoy seeing people just go at each other's throats and people just being way too over the top on both sides. 
I will be clear. I, I'm I wasn't necessarily um, criticizing his decision, like because like you said, but you were there's just a lot that out goes it still into qualifies it. as quitting. I was just yeah, I was mainly responding to someone who said like you can't quit a job that doesn't pay you, and it's yeah. like you can quit a team as a nine year old, like right. as a twelve year old. Like you can quit a team at any time, you know. So I'm just not really sure how. You know, the fact that you're not getting paid is I tried to quit Boy Scouts of America multiple times. My dad didn't let me do it, so I had to be (laughs) Yeah, I mean I'm sure there was a I remember I remember a time one of my AAU teams that I didn't play I think I played enough and I was like, Whatever, I'm quitting this team. This is stupid, (laughs) you know. My dad's like, No, you're not quitting the team and then, you know, next game you you play a little more and and you and you win and you're fine. But um yeah, so I can't uh, I can't really speak to to his his circumstances but it just it seems other than you know it seems like a bad look just because it's duke so it's a team that you're just used to competing and it's what, three weeks out from the conference tournament and still tournament and the guy's opting out on like maybe the worst duke year we've seen in like 20 years like who knows 30 years so i don't know it's a bad look but um yeah i mean i remember um when the whole senior bowl thing was going around and, and you know, I, I got on Twitter and I was like, Jamie Newman better not be rocking any Georgia stuff uh, at the <laughs> senior bowl. Like this guy's a wake forest football player. Like he should be rocking. Jo- he shouldn't be rocking Georgia. And Monty Rice for Georgia actually responded to me and it was like, no, it's all love. He's a dog. And it's, and you know, that's how the players feel. So I can't really speak if the locker room. But see, that's cool what I'm it, saying. And I think that's part of it. Yeah. It depends on what the locker room around him feels like. Yeah. And they, and they might all be like, yeah, man, this is a wasted season. You're going to be a top 10 pick. Like just go do your thing. You, you don't really have anything to play for at this point. I don't know. I feel like if my team's playing, I'm going to want to play in the games, but I also didn't have millions of dollars to, uh, to yeah, just settle down with. folks. My main thing is just like, Worry about your own stuff. Like, just settle down. It, it's fine. Like, you don't have to get all worked up one way or the other. Like, who knows? We don't really know what's going on there. We don't really know how he feels, his teammates feel, his coaching staff feels. I don't know. I I just, I don't get worked up one way or the other. Uh, don't forget, folks, you can listen to every episode of this very show by going to chasethomaspodcast.com. Uh, you can also follow Matt at Matt underscore W underscore green. Follow myself at Chase double underscore Thomas. Um, also, become a patron if you want to support uh, the writing and the podcast that we do five days a week. Um, go to patreon.com slash Chase Thomas writer. Um, we, uh, we have some news items we need to get to before we get into the, set, the, the main segment of today's show, the Are We Sure uh, segment. Um, there's a really good piece Matt in, uh, excuse me, on ESPN.com that I saved this week that I wanted to check out. And I thought it was really illuminating because I'm really interested in these stories and we'll get to UCF, but like the Cincinnati's like the school, I guess South Alabama also may qualify here soon. Um, the schools where maybe even Tulane with Willie Fritz, uh, Georgia Southern, um, the schools where like, they're in a fertile recruiting bed, but they're in a G5 situation, and there's no real path to um, a, a, the playoff, but there is a path to like getting some really good kids, stealing a one or two four-stars away from the SMUs of the world, uh, or of the, from the Texases of the world, you never know. Um, 
I, I just found this article on SMU and their surprising recruiting class very interesting because Sonny Dykes obviously a very good coach and he was also kind of rumored for the to be in the mix of the Tennessee job at one point. But um, good coach and he wins wherever he goes. His offense, air raid disciple. Um, I just I'm curious to see when programs try and build because SMU's obviously been a great program since he got there. Um, what did you make of the article and what do you make about SMU and what they can continue to try to do in a great recruiting area like Texas and find their own niche? Yeah, I think you're, you're going to see a lot of that. And, um, I think these teams are kind of set up with the, with the way the transfer portal is working. You're just going to see, you know, there's kind of that typical trend thing when you transfer, it seems to kind of be cliche, like, Oh, he's going to transfer close to home. You know, he's going to, oh, he's going to go back close to home, like near his family and stuff. It just seems to kind of be a common thing. So if you're in these places like Central Florida or an SMU or like a Southern Miss or something, somewhere like that, uh, a Tulane, like you said, like once you start getting, maybe even uh, Georgia Southern can kind of be considered that as well. You're going to see if a lot of these guys want to go somewhere and trans- want to transfer and know they're going to play. So they're going to go down to that group of five level. And I mean, just this year alone, you've seen SMU one, two, three, this is great radio. I think about like 10, 10 power five transfers um, have come into SMU just this off season. And I don't, I don't know how many, at least five or six have immediate eligibility. So yeah, it'll be interesting. Like the, the transfer portal could be the best thing to happen to these, I don't know, kind of college football mid majors, I think kind of how, you know, the junior college, uh, how Kansas State and Bill Snyder kind of started, that's kind of how they built their entire brand as a football program was was hitting the junior college ranks, you know, getting guys that are ready to play right now and that, you know, academics maybe got you not to the, the D1 school you wanted to go to, but they, they have D1 talent. And that's how Kansas State was able to build their entire program. They were basically a joke in college football history before Bill Snyder got there. So I think this transfer portal, that could be the key into some of these kind of mid-majors becoming more relevant. And I even think, you know, with the expanded playoff, like, you know, being relevant could could get these teams into a college football playoff one year. Yeah, and I think SMU is in that grouping where I could see the path. I could see everything coming together. I could see a situation where um, – they like but they're gonna have to schedule like one or two of the tcus and texases of the world like they're gonna have to schedule one or two of the big dogs they should have arkansas on the schedule more often um there there is a path i think um with the perfect kind of season for them um down there and uh where is what is it i always forget the name where where is it's not forward smu is in dallas is it straight up dallas i thought it was something yeah it's dallas okay um, yeah, don't you remember the the thirty for thirty? Yeah, uh, I guess it is Dallas. Okay, they done. they partly blamed Dallas for like getting exposed because like the there's such good like uh, there's two like really good newspapers, mm. and so they're just such good journalists basically doing <laughs> their job. That's kind of one of the reasons why they thought SMU uh, got exposed. Interesting. Um, Skip Bayless. Skip Bayless was in Dallas at that time. There you go. The Mac back before he was just a shock jock. I like it. I like it. Um, Malik Murphy committed to Texas since we last recorded Matt Green. Um, obviously, Texas lost uh, Quinn Ewers to Ohio State, the number one quarterback in the next class. 
Um, but they're all right. They get uh, Malik Murphy here. What do you think uh, about Steve Sarkeesian getting his first big quarterback commit? Yeah, it's big time. I mean, to lose – I know they haven't given up on um, on Quinn Ewers yet, but um, that's that's pretty massive to lose to lose that number one overall player out of the state of Texas. But, um, you know, with a guy like Malik Murphy, hopefully that's uh, enough to compensate. Absolutely. If you're a Texas fan, I guess. <laughs> and we'll get to Texas. Texas is, But the thing about Texas, too, is, like, it's never been a quarterback problem. It's not like they've lacked – talent at the QB position like from the Garrett Gilberts to the Colt McCoys to the Sam Ellingers to the Garrett Gilberts to the um <laughs> to the Garrett Gilberts so you, you said it multiple oh, times oh did I say him twice Te- um Texas great who else am I thinking of well I mean he was a five-star unless I'm mistaken I'm pretty sure he was a five-star yeah um, he didn't exactly he didn't exactly pan out but no but I, my, uh, my point is like they always have got like they can lose the number one guy in their class. The reason Texas has not been a sustainable playoff machine is not because they haven't recruited well at the quarterback position. You know what I mean? Like it, it that is I mean, not it seems the like reason. They've a few busts in there because I think you'd have to call Gilbert a, a bust as far as five star quarterbacks go. And I think that, was it Tyrell Swopes was that yeah. his name? Was he the one with Charlie Strong? I think he was a five star, and you know he yeah. is. The best he ever was was like the bell dozer for for a little bit there. He like a short yardage back. Yeah, when he beat Notre ever, Dame at, yeah. in Austin, that was a really memorable game. Yeah, and game. Texas was back. Yeah, great overtime or whatever. That was a crazy game. I don't know if it went to overtime or if it was just a a wild finish. But yeah, that we thought Texas was back then. Who knew? We thought they were back several times, Matt Green. It's a tradition like no other. Um, SoCon. Is coming back this week. Um, I'm reading a lot of FCS previews. I'm really excited about uh, SoCon coming back, Matt Green. I'm, I'm excited about FCS football this spring. There's a lot more teams playing than I thought there were. Not as many opt-outs as I thought when I was going back through and I was like, oh, uh, a lot of teams are playing and we're going to have real action next week. Is the this weekend, right? Well, there's only like one game this weekend. So technically it starts this weekend, but it, I think all the actual bigger games start next week. Yeah, we'll see. I um maybe once I see it on TV, I might I might start. Oh, never mind. There are some big ones this weekend. So we got. Oh, okay, Macker. We we know you're going to be all in on James Madison Moorhead. I know you're a big James Madison guy. We got Mercer at Wofford. Um, I will be tailgating early Saturday morning. That's that's Um, just big time SoCon football right there. Oh, I know, I know. You don't tell me. East Tennessee State, the Buccaneers hosting Samford. Bulldogs Saturday at one. I'll be tailgating out there in uh, East Tennessee, near my home. So I'll definitely be doing that. You got Furman, Western Carolina. You got Youngstown at North Dakota State Sunday at three thirty. You got Tennessee Tech hosting Austin P. How is Austin P. playing? By the way, are they just doing like a season every like just like what? Did am I crazy? They played right. They play. How many games did they play in the fall? Did they play? I don't. Do you even not know. remember the opening game? They were the first game of college football this year. Do you remember Michael even, Jr. Just, called this game? Like it was the first college oh, football right? game on TV. Do you remember that? Oh, that does sound familiar, right? The dude had like an eighty-yard run. Yes, like the, the first, first play was an eighty-yard touchdown run. Yes, that's right. I don't understand. Did they uh, opt out? I don't, I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> I'm they're confused. just trying to play anytime, literally anytime, any place. Like they're just gonna go ahead and play a full. I think seat, that's like, what it was. I think they had like two like non-conference games or something that they just went ahead and played. And then yeah, it looks like they have like a 
10 game schedule here. That's insane. These players. Yeah, so they played they played four games. No, no, they played three games on August uh, 29th, September 12th, September 19th, and now they have seven games left. Their season started <laughs> on February 21st. That's wild. Okay, that's the decision for sure. Um, that is that is wild. I, I I would love to know what the players really think about that. Um, but either way, I I kind of want to see like this could be our XFL this spring, like we had last year, Matt Green. Like we could have. Yeah, it's like, and in terms of you know, there's all kinds of regulations in terms of like how many hours a week they're allowed to spend on football. Like, what was the off season for them? Like, wh- like where have they been practicing this whole time, or they had to take some time off, right? Well, you're like not allowed to do much, uh, like during the summer. I know that there was like some weird stuff there, and like when they shut down, like when cl- like there was some weird stuff when the shutdown happened and classes being shut. I remember reading a piece, I think it was yesterday, by Jeff Schultz and the Athletic about Kennesaw's situation. Bohanna was interviewed, and their schedule being all messed up, and when they can practice. And um, I'm gonna go ahead and say. It seems like none of the teams had a schedule and a routine and have just like Kennesaw has not played a football game in 14 months. Is that not crazy? That is. Oh no. Breaking news tonight. Matt green. Breaking news. I'm I'm sick. There's no, you're going to love this. Georgia fans are going to love this, Matt. Um, Tennessee has added an sec veteran defensive coordinator who would you guess i would be very very unhappy to see their name oh man i'm actually i'm actually aware of this already okay i was i'm not i'm not gonna hate willie martinez your old friend willie martinez the worst defensive coordinator in like georgia history what what is this what what yeah what were what would have been willie martinez's years oh oh five to oh six to oh nine or so yeah, there were some good years with Willie Martinez for sure, but uh, things went downhill. Were there good years? I want to pull up pull up his numbers and see what they actually were. I'm pretty sure 2007. I'm, I want to say Willie Martinez was the defensive coordinator of that team. Who was? Was it? Did we go straight from Van Gorder to Willie Martinez? Yes. Is that how it? Yes. So I mean, if 2005 and that team won the SEC championship, Willie Martinez is the defensive coordinator. So I'm not. I, I feel like it's more fun to hate on Todd Grantham, just kind of the, the character that Todd Grantham is. But um, I feel like Willie Martinez, oh five, oh six, oh seven, Georgia's defense was really was was pretty big time. So he's uh, he's come he's had a few stops since then. But uh, I mean, as far as just being a secondary coach, or is he coaching just corners? Uh. It says defensive backs coach, but maybe it is just corners. I, I mean, know. yeah, I mean, he knows this guy knows the defensive backs. You know what I think is the bigger uh, hire um, is is Rodney Garner. Yes, former Georgia and Auburn D line coach. Like, he's one. one of the best. Yeah. He's one of the best defensive line recruiters, you know, in college football. So I think that I think that's a huge hire for Tennessee. I agree. I agree. Um, very excited about that one, and we'll get into Mr. Banks in a second um so you actually made a note which i thought was funny about uh this that with um shane beamer and south carolina so this was something i came across while reading um some uh different things on the coaching carousel um in the last week or so matt and the quote is shane beamer 
loves the school, where he served as an assistant from 2007 to 2010 and helped build the recruiting classes that sparked the Gamecocks to a 33-6 and six run from 2011 to 2013. I'm guessing the part you didn't know is like they were 33-6 and six during that two year, that three-year span. Oh, yeah, man. When they had those three 11-win uh, seasons in a row. That does seem crazy. And that's not even, and that didn't even include the year they won the East either. That's what's kind of crazy. It's 2010. I think they went like 10-4. and four. And then Steve the next Spurrier three years. There was like a medal of honor for what he did in Columbia. Without a doubt. And <laughs> that's that uh i think that bio is that like from the south carolina school website is it like his official head coaching bio that quote like that, no that i think sounds, it was on espn.com i think it was adam rittenberg uh, that sounds yeah. like such a stretch to try to give shade beamer credit for those great <laughs> uh south carolina years like he's a he's a recruiter i'm sure he's doing doing his doing his uh his part especially because that's as far as keeping the elite in-state talent uh, in 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 state, uh, that they did that unlike any other era of South Carolina football. I mean, it was with Marcus Lattimore, Jadavion Clowney, who's a receiver I'm blanking on, Alshon Jeffrey. Like those are some big time. Stephon Gilmore. St- Stephon Gilmore, I was about to say, yeah, those are some big time recruits Steve coming Garcia. out of high school. They were able to keep in state, yeah, for sure. So. So basically, what I'm what I'm hearing is Shane Beamer is responsible for <laughs> the greatest era of South Carolina football. It is a stretch, but I think the part about him being a good culture fit, which I think was the broader point, in that at least he was around and got to see how Spurrier did things during the most successful time. Um, I just think about South Carolina that we'll get into next week when we do our full breakdown of all the coaching changes. But like, I just. I'm still really underwhelmed with what happened with the coordinators and the staff that Beamer put around. He had more time than Heupel, and I think Heupel put together a better staff um, than Beamer. And some of it wasn't his fault, getting Mason and um, Bobo pulled from uh, out from under him by Brian Harson. But I don't know. I'm just pretty underwhelmed. It, that's the part that's that's the part that's tough. Is it like it, it's almost like he. He like played his hand too quickly. He should have just waited around and see who who all was there. So it's like he tried to put. To, it seemed like he was putting together a good staff, and and then it's almost like the South Carolina kind of let him down, and kind of how how those uh, position coaches and those coordinators perceived the level that South Carolina is as opposed to Auburn or some of these other places. Yeah, absolutely. Um... So this is your bread and butter, Matt. As the the recruiting guru over here, Matt, um, explain to our awesome listeners what is going on with the recruiting changes and uh, why some uh, obsessive 247 sports readers are going to be disappointed over the next couple of months. Maybe not over the next couple of months, but um, over the next couple of years – I think we're collectively going to be disappointed as people who obsess over recruiting. So the most recent news is the dead period, recruiting dead period has been extended once again to May 31st, which I don't know the exact definition of it, but essentially, you know, uh, recruits can't visit schools and the coaches can't like officially visit them and have face-to-face contact and all that. And so it just got me thinking with this 2021 recruiting class and this 2022 recruiting class, depending on, you know, when things, you know, we all talk about things are never going to get back to normal. 
But if they get back to normal-ish in time for the 2022 football season and maybe things are happening then, then then my kind of my rant won't be as important. But if things don't get normal and we have more craziness and more game high school games getting canceled and things like that and these all-American games getting canceled and these exposure camps being canceled – we're going to see the most inaccurate recruiting rankings we've like ever seen. And so we all lo- love to look at like these, these team composite talent rankings and add up these recruiting classes and, oh, and how they fit these multiple classes. Oh, this is the most talented team and all that stuff. The transfer portal is already throwing it off a little bit because you got teams like Florida that have like the 12th ranked recruiting class. But then, you know, if you kind of include Eric Gilbert and, uh, Oh, I'm blanking on the Clemson uh, transfer, running back transfer. Uh, it's like those are two five-star players. It kind of changes how Florida's recruiting rankings look. So the transfer portal's kind of already thrown off those team composite t- talent recruiting rankings type things we love to look at. But now with these 2021 and 2022 classes, you're having guys, you're having the All-American games canceled. And, you know, multiple states didn't have a high school football season this past year. It's just going to be very difficult to to you know rank all these guys and evaluate who the best players in the country are. So now it's like I've gotten to the point where if I see a, a three star that's offered by Georgia or Alabama, I'm just going to kind of assume this guy's a baller, and the, the sites just haven't had enough content, haven't had enough to evaluate him yet. So I got I'm just going to kind of trust these coaches that typically do a good job on the recruiting trail, and and not look at the rankings as much, at least for these. 2021 and 2022 classes hopefully things get back to normal after that but it's it's already enough of a crapshoot you know we know these these great players can can come from anywhere they can be two stars they can be zero stars and just come out of nowhere but ultimately when you see that those those composite those 300 uh point classes and things like that for team rankings they're usually a good barometer for telling you how much talent you have so It'll be interesting moving forward to see how how right or how wrong these evaluators are with these rankings. Yeah, and this was uh, this is actually like the weird part about uh, Florida is that um, this is the kind I don't know if this hurts Florida. I guess they're going to be a good test case here, where like everything I've read is it seems like more of the savvier coaches use this time period uh, because they weren't able to see a lot of guys in purpose person to maximize the transfer portal and um that is where dan mullen he he thrives in the portal so i wonder if people um coming up on his territory uh that bothered him at all like just seeing all the different coaches get in there and be like yeah we don't really know about this four or three star um out of this place because we weren't able to see him in person this fall we're just gonna go and hope this five star who didn't get to play this year in uh, oklahoma state is gonna get upset and transfer like I wonder how much of that is going to be a thing. Yeah, and DeBarcus Bowman was the name that I was blanking mm-hmm. on, by the way, the five-star running back from Clemson. Um, but, yeah, I, I really wonder because Florida seems to be that – probably that, I don't know, our perception of the best programs in the country, they seem to be probably the best program out there that seems to not be recruiting at the level we expect. You know, LSU, they're they're getting the, the talent we expect them to get. Georgia's getting the talent we expect them to get. Texas, even though they're struggling on the field, they're still getting the talent we expect them to get. Florida seems to be the one that is 
is a little behind, but if you're if you're gonna be able to get five star players out of the transfer portal, like that's that's an equalizer right there. Like you lose a guy like Kyle Pitts and you bring a guy in like Eric Gilbert, like as far as I'm concerned, Kyle Pitts is the most dominant uh tight end I've ever seen in college football, like since I've been watching college football. And if you you they could potentially not have any drop off at all, and that would just that would be insane because uh, because of the year Pitts had last year. But Eric Gilbert, Eric Gilbert, I don't know exactly the pronunciation. Eric. Eric Gilbert, he um, I mean he could be he could be a just pick up right where Pitts left off basically. And they recruited well. I want to say they added at least one four or five star tight end in their most recent class. I'm pretty sure they actually cleaned up the tight end position. I think they have a five star. Um. And also, like, the Georgia fans who, like, really wanted him. Like, why? Where's the room? You have Washington. You have all these guys. Like, there's no room. Why would he go to Georgia? I never understood that. Um, yeah, Brock Bowers, too, is big-time yeah. freshman coming like, in. But no he room. just – he – you find you no room at Flanker. Like Dude, I was like, reading Dogs 247 today, and they're doing their preview series. And they're outlining – because it's going to be um, – what's the kid's name? Number seven. Burton, um, who will start at Flanker for them. The guy – so Flanker for – the, the not football obsessive people he'll he's behind the line it's not the slot he's a little off the line of scrimmage and burton was just um really really good there but you have demetrius robinson who's getting his ninth year of eligibility to return to georgia you have uh, <laughs> bush who if he can stay healthy has the most upside there and you have just there's just so many guys like that's at flanker that's not even their most important position, but Georgia just has. I think I think Tommy yeah. Bush. I, I, I don't. I think he's been written off at this point. I don't. I don't know if I don't know if you read about it. They're like, no, he has too much raw ability. We're not writing him off. He's healthy. He's playing. But even before him, I mean, just this year, you got you got Pickens and Kyrus Jackson, you got Blaylock coming and, uh, back, at some Blaylock point. coming yeah. off. Yeah, Jermaine Burton. I think there's going to be yeah. a lot. And people talk about Brock Bowers, like, like he's a. a a legit like lasered four or five as a tight end coming out of high school. And he didn't even get to play a senior year in California. So he's also a big time recruit and Darnell Washington obviously was like the ranked right up there with Eric Gilbert coming out of high school. It's there's, there's a lot of weapons for sure. And not, that's not even including how James cook is probably going to be used in the, in the passing game as well. Yeah, we shall see. Um, We'll get into Malzahn. Like, obviously, since we last recorded, he got the UCF job. But uh, we'll talk about that um, more detail in just a second. Um, Tennessee hired, finally hired a defensive coordinator. Um, we talked about some options last week. It turned out to be neither of them. They go to uh, Penn State to get Mr. Banks. Um, a lot of experience there. Seems like he's a good recruiter. He's already got a relationship with a four-star corner out of Brentwood, um Tennessee and there they've been talking so that looks good being able to keep him in state would be great um yeah I uh I don't have a lot of thoughts because he was the Cody C but um Penn State great recruiting situation worked under James Franklin worked under a lot of great coaches in the past um I don't know I like the staff and like we talked about Rodney Garner I think was at home run higher at DC or at uh, defensive line um we'll see my biggest thing is how much is Banks calling Crouch? How much is he calling uh, Henry Toa Toa? Like, can he get them out of the portal and come back? Well, we'll see, but that's his first uh, first order of business, I think, is to pull as many back out of the portal as he can. Yeah, and I think he also had success um, at Illinois prior to Penn State, yeah. too. So, yeah, that's the one thing is that I've heard he's he's never called defensive plays, so that'll yeah. be that'll be the challenge. But, um, yeah, we actually – I don't think we ever talked about that. It, it, 
I heard about it right off, right after we got after the last, right after we got off the last pod of Henry Toa Toa is apparently leaning towards transferring to Bama. That would be the worst thing ever, man. Like, come on. Like, they can't just start taking good SEC players. They're, they're already getting all the players they want out of high school. Like, we got to give the rest of the conference a shot. Yeah, I don't I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but Jay Graham already trolling Tennessee um, on Twitter. I don't know if you saw that, um, pointing out how long it's been since Alabama lost to Tennessee, um, which stings as Jay Graham, former Tennessee running back. Um who was replacing Charles Huff at running running back coach at Alabama? Um, is it something along the lines that no one's ever like no, tweeted it's the days. that Tennessee? It's the I days. think someone once said that no one's ever tweeted that Tennessee just beat Alabama. Oh, oh no! Um, <laughs> it was yikes. it was bad. It was something yikes. like that. Or someone's never never gotten their iPhone out and and tweeted that Tennessee uh, just beat. <laughs> oh, that's not great. Um. Gus Malzahn, quote, we need to schedule a top 10 opponent and beat them. I'll play them out in the parking lot. I don't care. I want to play them and I want to beat them. This sentiment obviously closely resembling what Coastal did this past fall, what BYU did this past fall, what Luke Fickle wanted to do at Cincinnati this past fall and put George to the wire in the Peach Bowl. Um I like this, and I think this is something that I think is going to be good for the sport because if we're not going to get rid of the playoff as we should, then look, you better start these power five schools that want the playoff and everything else. You better start booking these group of five schools that going into each season because we know you do not have to book these games out 10 years in advance to get them done. No, you need to look at the calendar. And you need to go, or not even look at the counter. You do a coach's poll. Look around the league and be like, who do you think is going to be really good? Okay, give these group of five schools a shot. Put them on the counter. Take away that McNeese State game, and you're going to put UCF on. Like, if you're Florida, guess what? You're not opening with um, uh, whoever. You're Alcorn State. No, you're opening with UCF. You need to start scheduling these games. and That's the first thing I thought was yeah. maybe Gus Malzahn's the one that makes Florida Central Florida happen because that's what we all want to see. There's, yes. there's this pissing contest going back and forth. We played in Orlando, but there's a stadium in Orlando that's not UCF Stadium, right? Like the where they play the – like they have their home stadium and yes. then they have where they play the Citrus Bowl or whatever. Yes. Like – like it's it seems like such semantics. It's like that's that's like an hour drive for for Florida. It's like we just need to make this game happen. Right. Like these are the obvious ones that should happen. Like SMU and Texas should just happen. Um all the time. Make sure that always happens. And Cincinnati, Ohio State should happen every year. There is no reason Cincinnati and Ohio State should not play every year. Um they're just little games like that. So I, I hope UCF and Gus Malzahn leads this charge and more and more schools get this. Like BYU, guess what? USC we're getting BYU USC every year or something like let's do let's do stuff like that where you look at the calendar and you're like who are going to be the best group of five schools um on the calendar um kind of like what Oregon did when they booked North Dakota State um that did not happen this past fall that would have been awesome Trey Lance going to Oregon and upending their season in like week two would have been interesting but um hey man yeah. I'm still pushing for the for the bracket buster weekend that we threw out there a few months back yeah like just group of five championship first week of December or something. Let's just give us Cincinnati versus BYU. Like, let's just 
you know, give us Memphis, one of these, one of these big, uh, pa- uh, big time group of five teams. Like, it would be so good for both of the expo of the exposure for both of those teams that that get in there. Absolutely. Or just like a four team group of five playoff. Like, let's give them something. Like, I don't know. I agree. Um, well, let's get into our game this week, Matt. Um, we're gonna play. Are we sure? Dot dot dot. And it's a take that we think has been thrown around a lot that just seems to be understood. That you and I both think, um, well, I don't know if this conventional wisdom is correct. First, Matt Green, are we sure, dot, 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 Steve Sarkeesian will fix Texas? Um, I'm not sure. I think... Uh... I, I think this is one of the best hires, you know, of the off season. Like I thought, you know, I thought they made the right choice to go with Sarkeesian, but I also thought they made the right choice to Tom Herman. And when I heard they hired Charlie Strong initially, <laughs> I was like, yeah, that seems like a good hire. Charlie Strong or learn uh, an Urban Meyer guy. So at this point, I don't even know with Texas. They, they've hired multiple, you know, good coordinators to take over, Sarkeesian obviously has more experience as a head coach, uh, bef- probably than either of them had uh, before this. But I, um, Texas is just—I don't know—it's starting to. I, I feel like it's the job with the most pressure of any job in college football. Do you think that's accurate? You, mm, yeah. Like they, like they feel like England in in uh <laughs> in soccer. Like they they invented the game, so they think they should be the best. Not that Texas invented the game, but if you ask them, they probably would tell you that they did invent the game. But it's like they went, I don't know, I think they've gone like forty years without winning the World Cup, fifty years without them winning the World Cup or something. Mm-hmm. And it's I don't know, Texas just, just feels it, I get like, what you're saying, where it's just there's like, like a superiority avoided. there, but it's yeah. like hollow. Like you're not really you're not really better than everyone. You just kind of feel like you're better than everyone and you expect to win a championship every year. But it's, I mean, it's been a while since they were truly in like national championship contention, like even in like win the conference championship in there in the playoff or something like that. Like we're going on like 10, 11 years since we've had, since Texas has been in that position. So I think Sarkeesian is the right guy, but I'm not sure that he's going to fix Texas. I'm not either, and we'll get into more detail, like I said, next week, but I I think it's interesting just to see how many people have just penciled him in as, like, the best hire this offseason, and we'll get into that, but I am with you. I am not, verdict on my end, not sure that he will fix Texas because, you know, um, I talked to Ian Boyd of Inside Texas um, about a month ago, I guess, and he was throwing out names like Gary Kubiak. And it was interesting to me because of what he said the Texas job is, is like, unless you are a CEO coach, it just doesn't work. And he is going to be calling the plays in Austin. And if you look at the playoff this year and you look at the teams that are really succeeding in the power five, those coaches are not calling plays. They're all expert CEOs, right? Like the ones who call the plays, like the Mark Helfriches can flame out quickly. Those coaches who do not know how to delegate and put out this recruiting mon- monster, basically, um, it doesn't typically go well. Like, it just doesn't last long term. You have to be able to transition to being a Jim Trestle. You have to transition to Bob Stoops. You have to transition to Urban Meyer. You have to transition to Nick Saban. You have to transition to Brian Kelly. You have to transition to, I mean, look at Ed Orgeron. He won a title because he hired well. 
Like he hired unbelievably well. He hired Joe Brady. He hired an amazing recruiting department and he had Dave Aranda. Like he had all the right guys hiring. Well is like just as important as anything else in the power five. And we'll see with Kyle flood and all this stuff. But like, I don't think he hired incredibly well. And I also think it's kind of concerning that he's calling plays. Like he, I don't know what kind of CEO he is going to be in Austin. And from Ian's perspective, it was just like, there's just so much outside noise, which what you spoke to that. I don't know if Sark, like we don't know enough yet. We don't know how far he's come since USC and Washington. We just don't know if he can handle everything that comes with being the coach at the university of Texas. And um, I don't know. It it make it's amazing how much Mac Brown's stock has risen in the last like two years, seeing what he's done at North Carolina anyway, but also just like how much success he had for such a long time at Texas. Just like we thought it was just in Texas, so they should be awesome. And he instilled that again, but since he's been gone, it uh is not worked out. Um next, are we sure? UGA fans, this is for you, Matt Green won't get impatient with Kirby because this is something I thought about with Kirby locking up another top five class. They have all the time in the world. We look at this next year's class and looks like another top three, maybe number one. If UGA, because if you look at the schedule and you look at where Bama should be, you look at LSU, you look at A&M, you look at the East with Emory Jones, everything is laid out for Georgia to make a national title run next year. Do you think there is a lot more pressure for Kirby to finally do it this year when some of the bigger ones are down? Ohio State also should be down. Notre Dame should be down. Are we sure UGA fans won't get impatient with Kirby if they don't win the SEC and make the playoff this year? So you're saying... A year from today, yes. If if Georgia doesn't win the national championship, would UGA fans will kind of start turning on him? Is there a chance? Yes. I I don't think there's any chance at all of that. Personally, I think I think the the Saban dominance has kind of I don't know uh, straightened some Georgia fans' expectations out a little bit. It's like okay, maybe we can't just you know want to fire our head coach every time we we lose to Alabama because everyone is losing to Alabama basically. So it's it's tough. So I was going to say I was I was curious what your premise was here at first cuz like if we're I think if we're 5 years from now and Georgia doesn't have a national championship then you know I think there's a conversation there. But you know if if 5 years from now Georgia has won one SEC title and made you know made, I'll say one college football playoff because that would probably even be disappointing if Georgia only makes one college football playoff in the next five years, but still doesn't have a national championship. And, you know, maybe you've gone to the SEC championship four of those five years or something, and you're having 11 and one seasons. And as long as you're contending to contend, I don't, I don't think, I think, and Nick Saban is still at Alabama five years from now and continuing to dominate. I think, I think Georgia fans are going to be realistic. Like, we just need to continue to sit here and knock on the door because at some point we're going to break through. Like, because right now, like Mark Rick, he gets talked about for you know he's a good coach but not a great coach, and and I feel like there's like this revisionist history now with with Kirby having success that oh well Rick he's doing the same thing Rick did and it's like yeah the records are very similar and Rick's first five years were very good but this feels so much different like 
Georgia is so much closer to just elite of elite status than they were. Because if you actually look at Mark Richt with some of those 10 and 3 seasons, it's like there's three good teams on the schedule and he goes 10 and 3. It's like there's there's multiple seasons of of finishing out like of finishing just outside the top 10 like even though these last three years have all been disappointing for Georgia, it's like they're disappointing and you finish fifth and you finish seventh and you finish ninth. It's like, I think Georgia fans are, are, are realistic and they know how close Kirby has them. And more than anything, he's Kirby is just, he's, he's Georgia's when own. When is close just not, when is it just no longer enough? It's like, man, we just, we recruit too well. Like Oklahoma is not recruiting like we are, and they've gotten multiple appearances. Um, LSU got their ring, Bama got their ring. We're recruiting at the same level, and we don't have ours. Like if everyone around don't them you, gets it, don't you think if if you just swap Oklahoma and Georgia, then it's Oklahoma that's losing in the SEC championship every year, and it's Georgia that's going to the playoff and maybe losing in the first round of the playoff every year, like. I don't even know that Oklahoma has been better at all than Georgia over the last four years. They just, they're playing in a clearly inferior conference and they've been able to dominate it. Like no disrespect to Oklahoma, but I feel like it's just a, we saw what LSU did to everybody. It's like, they just did it to Georgia three weeks before they did it to Oklahoma. And, and they did it a lot worse to Oklahoma too. So I think, there's this kind of narrative that it's like because of what you just said that it's like 2021 is like a now or never for for Georgia like there's if they don't if they don't win a national national championship in 2021 like it's never going to be set up any better for them it's like I felt that way about Florida last year like if Florida doesn't win the East in 2020 with how everything is set up and all the talent they lose the next year I'm not sure Dan Mullen will ever win the East like that narrative made sense to me because. You saw everything Florida was losing, and you saw that Georgia, you know, was kind of down on offense. They had a, just the worst quarterback play you could imagine for a, a top five, top ten caliber team, and so that narrative made sense to me. But you look at Georgia, it's like, what do we? How do we judge what the future is going to be? Like recruiting and getting elite quarterbacks. It's like Georgia's been top three recruiting four years in a row. They got a five star quarterback. They currently have good, uh, should have a good quarterback on the. Uh, starting on their team with JT Daniels. And then you get a five-star Brock Vandergriff coming in in 2021. And you got a five-star Gunnar Stockton committed for 2022. Like there's no reason to think Georgia shouldn't be good. Like in a, a championship contender every year between now and like 2020 20, or 2024 or so, you know, it's, so I think Georgia fans will be realistic, especially if Nick Saban is around. I think that's when you're going to see people get impatient. If, if Nick Saban retires in 2023 or something, and it's 2027 and Kirby Smart still doesn't have a national championship, like people are going to be losing it. But the I think fact that I think you're being very generous here. When did fans think, start losing it with Mark Rick? It did not take that long, and that was worse recruiting classes. But I mean, if you think about how Rick's time went, it's like the the seat didn't ever really get hot until. I'm not saying I would say 2011, hot, but I'm saying when did fans start getting really annoyed? It, I guess the I, I would Murray say 2008. Year. 2008 was the year that like the preseason number one with Matthew Stafford and everything. That year is looked at as like the worst team of all time, like in Georgia history. It's like they were like 10 and three, finished ranked like 10th or something. But it was like the expectations what they were. They're getting blown out by Alabama and Florida. 
it was like that that was like the start of the turning on Mark Richt and then the 2010 was the year that finished six and seven and then they opened 2011 with the losses to Boise State and South Carolina back to back 0 and 2 that was by far I think the hottest Mark Rick seat like ever got and then they routed off 10 straight wins and lost in the SEC championship that year and then 2012 was one of the better years of his of his tenure but I uh there was I think I think people just like overestimate how many years Mark Richt was truly contending. Like 2002, obviously, if it's a different, like if it's a different setup, like if there's a playoff, like Georgia's in the playoff in 2002. Like the 2005 team, like even winning the SEC, that that team wouldn't have gotten to the SEC championship. Like 2007 was a good team, and like 2012 was the team that almost uh, got to the national championship. And uh, with that close loss to Alabama, so it's like four times in like 15 years that Georgia was like really a national title contender, like finishing like top five around there. Like in five years at at Georgia, Kirby Smart, Georgia's been a contender three of those years. So I feel like Georgia's just in a lot better, a lot better situation than they were. And you know, I could be unrealistic. No, they are in a better situation. I think that's why expectations should be raised is I think Georgia fans have it right. If Kirby doesn't win it with the level that he is recruiting, I think it's fair to say he's got to go if you don't re- win a title in the next but three years. did you see Alabama just had the greatest recruiting class of I'm all not disagreeing, time this but year. Alabama, so they're like, not even they're, – they're having the most insane recruiting run they've ever had well, in their At some point, what history, I'm saying is it has to be part of the coach one. and it has to be what you're developing Like, because you still have enough to win. And I understand the Alabama thing. I really do. And it changes stuff, but like Georgia is as close, like outside of Ohio State. And Clemson did it. Remember, Georgia's recruited better than Clemson. And Georgia, I mean, Clemson's done it. Like Clemson beat them. And if you get Trevor Lawrence, and as a heads up, if Field stays at Georgia, are we sure they don't get Alabama one of the last couple of years? Are we sure? I mean, do they beat Alabama? They beat this year as Alabama team. Do they beat last year's LSU team? Well, I mean, I'm those are two of the greatest teams we've like ever seen. Well, I'm saying like year three, Justin Fields in that system. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I um, it, it, it's definitely an interesting. We conversation. saw how different they were with JT Daniels. We saw what Georgia looks like when they have the elite quarterback, and JT Daniels has all the makings of being um, the best quarterback in the SEC this year. Like it's okay to have heightened expectations when you recruit at the level that Georgia is and the recruiting fertile ground that they're in. Like I don't know, I just think that they're it's different expectations for Georgia than it is for Mississippi State. Is all I'm saying. Of course, and it's okay to have those elite expectations, but are you going to fire a coach that's t- that's consistently going eleven and one and and being in those SEC championship I mean, games? If you can get the Tony Elliott oh. and give him a shot. Yeah, you do it. No, you're you're crazy. Kirby Smart. I, I, like, I I honestly Nick Saban as a Georgia fan, Nick Saban is the only coach. And honestly, because he's Wait, so where old, are you about I to go with this? Where are you about to go with Saban. this? Are you about to say Kirby? I almost wouldn't even trade Kirby for Saban. I know you're it's, it's out dumb. of your mind, sir. But that's the just because Kirby he's so old. What? If you could guarantee me Saban would coach for five more years, then I'm taking Saban over Kirby. For 100%. Are you taking Kirby over Dabo? I mean, he's he's Georgia's own man. Oh no! Kirby's built Kirby's built oh. Georgia into a powerhouse. Are you taking him over like, Lincoln? Arrow? I'm not saying he's a better coach than Dabo. I'm just saying, like, for what Georgia has in their situation, like, I, I, I he's 
he's not going to do more. Dad was not going to do more at Georgia than, than Kirby's done. Like, I honestly I don't. I don't think that's a guarantee, sir. <laughs> I just think, I, I think we're, we overlook the ACC. Like, there's, I mean, there's a reason. He's fine, but he's still winning in the playoff. Like, he's still winning. Like, Dabo is, yeah, like you've said, Kirby's recruited better than Dabo, and Dabo's getting like the fifth and sixth and seventh recruiting classes, but they're the best recruiting class in the ACC every year. You know what I mean? St- like, but what I'm saying is those guys are beating Bama. I mean, they beat Bama twice, for yes. sure. Georgia but they also got zero. blown out by Bama one year, too. And it's like they that, beat them twice. That Kirby can't Bryant, beat them once. If that team in Kelly, with Kelly Bryant doesn't uh, isn't in the ACC, there's no chance they're. Well, in the how about playoff. this? Let me, that po- wasn't let, even me, let me let me pose this question to you, Matt Green. So let's say Georgia runs the table this year. They blow out everybody in the East. Florida's down. Emory is a disaster. Missouri is the second best uh, SEC team, East team. Beat the doors off them. Eleven and zero. They go into or twelve and zero. They go into the SEC title game against Alabama. Bama's 11 and 1. Lost to either LSU or AM, still found their way in. Georgia gets beat, undefeated season over, left out of the playoff. You don't think the heat is on. If JT Daniels wins the Heisman or is in the Heisman candidate, kind of like a two season. Georgia goes undefeated and Georgia's loses an SEC championship yes. and gets bumped from the playoff? Yes. You don't think No, the Heat is there. 100% going to be on the playoff committee. It's not going to be on oh, Kirby Oh, interesting. You don't think Georgia fans will be pissed off about a, that loss? A okay. one loss, uh, you're looting it. I assume Alabama would probably be like number one or yep. number two if, if they won that game. It's like well, I mean, your one loss Ohio is a number State one. Number goes two. undefeated. Clemson goes oh, undefeated man. and USC or Oregon go undefeated, they're in. Oh man. No, I'm absolutely like, I'm, I'm I'm heartbroken, like as a Georgia but fan. But I'm saying you don't think like, I don't the want majority to fire my of Georgia fans are losing it. You don't think the majority are gonna be upset. I mean they're all gonna be upset, but it's just a matter of firing the coach over. It would be like a not, ridiculous. I'm not saying solution. fire the coach, but I'm saying the heat that his seat will get very warm, is what I'm saying. I, think. I mean, it, a lot of it depends on, you know, how it happens, too. Like, okay. the, the fake punt is, like, one of the <laughs> only, like, things in Kirby Smart's career where you're just like, that was so dumb. Well, like, most punted. of the other things Hold Kirby's on, some done. of the play calling in the Cincinnati game, if they had lost that game, I would have been like, ah, there's some more stuff here where I'm like, what, what, what are you doing, Kirby? Yeah, I think there was the questionable, like, fourth down. Yes. Yeah, that people wanted, thought Georgia should have gone for, but... You know what? What can you do? I guess you got he's also him. that's the thing. He's in his fifth year as a head coach. Like that's another thing that people don't give him credit for. Like you saw what Dabo and Clemson were five years in. Like they weren't close to what Georgia's been. And obviously Georgia was better than Clemson. Like better the program there, took yeah. over was a little better, but the Clemson was a good program in the in the two thousands for sure. They weren't some bottom feeder. Are we sure? Dot dot dot. Matt Green. Mr. Norvell won't bring Florida State back. Some really good under-the-radar stuff. Got a lot of good quarterbacks in the pipeline. He got Mr. Purdy's little brother in there. Um, he's actually recruiting quarterbacks, unlike his predecessor. Um, I think there is a path to Florida State being back. I think Norvell's a really good coach. They got closer to competence this year. I think getting back in that recruiting situation is perhaps a lot easier than in other situations. Um, the bar has gotten lower for Novell and the staff after seeing what happened in the last couple uh, coaching staffs. Um, 
we've seen it not that long ago. We've seen it more recently than Miami. Miami, it's been 20 years. It's been less than 10 since uh, Jameis and Jimbo brought that team to prominence. I um, I really and even like, like the Dalvin Cook years. Like, yeah, that, that wasn't that long ago. Exactly, and part of it has been money. Um, where their budget has been has been a problem for Florida State in recent years. But I do think Norvell has a very good chance of bringing Florida State back. And I like their staff. I like the recruiting stuff they're doing. I think Norvell is sneakily building something back that's sustainable in Tallahassee. What do you think? Well, in terms of uh, the, the game we're playing here, the format of the game, I would say I'm not sure that Mike Norvell, I guess, oh shoot, now, how, how did you phrase it? That Norvell won't bring FSU back. So yes. I'm not sure. Like you said, Ryan Bartow, the, ACC... the reason I'm saying that too, Ryan Bartow has been hired as the director of high school relations. He's doing the stuff where I'm like, oh, that's a little thing that people may not keep up with. But like, that's that's a big thing. I, I am saying yes, that I do believe he will bring them back. I'm sure that he is going to be the guy that brings Florida State back into the upper echelon of the ACC and the best challenger to Clemson in the next two to three years. That is the that is what I'm asking here. Yeah, see, I'm not sure that he is the guy. I I think it's a it's a solid hire, but I think the opportunity is definitely there. Like the ACC is wide open. Like they were the 13th best team in the ACC this year. Like, I don't know how you get any worse than that. So the ACC, you know, Notre Dame's not going to be in the ACC next year. So outside of Clemson and North Carolina, you know, the conference is wide open uh, in Miami, you know, you can put them up there too. But I think FSU, it's, it's reasonable for, to think that FSU should be, you know, back in the top at least five or six in the ACC. Like, I think a lot of it's hinging on what what we can expect from Mackenzie Milton. Like if if he's truly back to the level that we previously saw him at, like I think you know you could see a huge upgrade for uh, Florida State in 2021. And and they've been hitting the transfer portal hard. A lot of uh, you know SEC guys and and major big time conference guys uh, going to Florida State. So I feel like Florida State they still have that cachet you know you still have some prominent nfl stars that can claim florida state you know you still have the jalen ramseys of the world that you can like that you can point to they're still out there so it's not like ancient history yet but um i i feel like just based on the ac the the landscape of the acc i feel like florida state's got to be back in in a couple years i would think yeah and then milton like you said if he's what he was in 2017 um or anywhere close florida state's got an elite quarterback um working with against sam howell and friends in the acc next year and dj ula um matt green are we sure dot 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 tennessee is a better job than ucf sugar ray leonard roberto duran marvelous marvin Hagler, and thomas hearns Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. I, uh, I am not sure 
that Tennessee is a better job than UCF. And and here's why, Sarah. I think a lot of there's been a lot of talk about Tennessee and UCF this offseason with uh with Gus Malzahn, you know, getting fired and where he was linked to, now him ending up at Central Florida and Josh Heupel going to Tennessee. And I think we just see on paper, uh, yeah, Central Florida, the AAC, Tennessee, and the SEC, that's obviously an upgrade. You know, the, the money obviously says it's an upgrade. But then you actually take a step back and look at what you're getting into, and you're a team that has Georgia and Alabama on your schedule every single year. And it's been, you know, we're going on 20 years. What is it? 20, 22 years since Tennessee has, has won the conference. You look at the American athletic conference, three of the last four years, if, if we're in an 18 playoff, which we, I think we all agree the, the playoff expansion is inevitable. If, if we're in an 18 playoff, the last four years, there's an AAC team in the playoff three of those years. And it's Central Florida two of those years. So if you just talk about where you're able to win and get on that, get that national exposure and like who's got a better shot at just getting to the college football playoff, I feel like you'd have to say it's Central Florida. I think there's a good case there. And I think Gus Malzahn is going to bring them back very quickly. And I'm concerned about the Dylan Gabriel fit like that. I spent way too much time today walking on my walk. I thought a lot about Dylan Gabriel in this offense and like in, him <laughs> in Knoxville. Cause I was like, this is going to be a disaster for him. Like that is something like that keeping you up at night. Yeah. Well, not keeping me up at night. Just like, <laughs> yeah. you know, Hendon hooker should be cool. But like, like I'm Harrison Bailey's out of my life, but you know, Dylan Gabriel, come on down. Like you're not going to be utilizing Gus Buss's offense. Like, Think about Bo Nix the last two years. Think about Jarrett Stidham in his last year. Think about what quarterback play turns into the longer you're in Gus Malzahn's system. Like, that is something that we have to consider. And UCF, um, he's going to recruit well. He's going to win a lot of football games. He doesn't have losing seasons. All that's great. However, he doesn't develop quarterbacks. And this game is becoming increasingly more dependent on quality quarterback play. Do you know who developed quarterbacks, who recruited them well? Josh Eipel. He's the one who, like, Josh Eipel is a big reason as to why Drew Locke was great at uh, Missouri, why Dylan Gabriel was great. And also, when people talk about the slide Hypo was having in uh, UCF, what they fail to mention is what Scott Frost had before McKenzie Milton. Do you remember his seasons before? Have you seen his record with and without McKenzie Milton at UCF? They they had like a one-win season, didn't yes. they? Yes. Like, he... <laughs> <laughs> they throw it around with Hypo. And I'm like... Every basically the whole stat with that is was McKenzie Milton on the field? No. Okay. Well, then UCF started falling. Like he was an all-time great quarterback, and that's why the injury was so devastating. Like, yes, that's what happened there. It's just like no McKenzie Milton. Did you have McKenzie Milton? Great. Um, and that was actually I just looked. That's actually the year before Frost got there is when they went zero and twelve. Well, no, I'm saying his first year. What was his first first year? year? Yeah, they went six and seven. Yes. Okay. Losing record which is what I was saying is like he had yeah, a losing yeah, yeah. record without McKenzie Milton, um, which is my broader point here. But anyway, he's got a losing record at Nebraska too. Exactly. And we're just like, we give Scott Frost a pass, but like Josh Eipel, like gradually slaying. It's not like he's having losing records there. It's like he was developing a quarterback. The defense got shredded and whatever. Anyway, cool. I'll be thing I wonder about Gus. We, we talk about Dylan Gabriel's that- going to struggle. Like if I'm Dylan Gabriel, I'm out of there. I'm out of Orlando. Your draft stock going down the tubes, my friend. He was going to go to but, Army. 
Josh Eichner persuaded <laughs> him to UCF. You, did you know that story? He wanted to go to Army. But I also wonder if part of Gus's uh, problem was being in the SEC and kind of, you know, mm. those. There's more. Not not saying that we all saw SEC defenses are better or anything, but it's like there's better defensive athletes in the SEC any other than any other conference. I don't think you can even really question that. So. You know, maybe if he's doing this in the AAC and it's his little kind of creative little offense that he, that he that he runs, it's just kind of different. I don't know, really know what to call it. It's kind of a modern day triple option. That it, it, it could work, and if you have a guy who can who can pass it, it, it kind of makes that running game even more dangerous. So I wouldn't put it past Gus Malzahn to be able to have success with Dylan Gabriel. Okay. I, I'm gonna say no. I mean that one year uh, with with Sean White. I think he they when they they had those two bruisers. They had Petway and um oh man I can't remember who the other running back they had on that team was that would that have been Carryon Johnson I'm as sure the Carryon yeah with the second running back. But I mean that team was a pretty good team and they had a quarterback who couldn't who couldn't really run. So I don't know. Well we'll see. I I think just the I think this is a home run hire for Central Florida like. Just the fact that, like, the the value, if nothing else, like, this guy's making, like, $7 million at Auburn, and now you're getting him for two point five. Like, it's just – it's the best they could have asked for. I agree. That part is true. Dylan Gabriel, Rocky Top's great. Make the transfer. Last one. Are we sure, dot, 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 the Pac-12 will return to national relevance? You really hate the Pac-12 more than anything else in this planet, don't you, Matt Green? I don't hate the Pac-12. I'm just, uh, I'm just not sure how long we can hold on to this Power Five status. Oh, you want like, to relegate him? You want to go Big full East, Premier the League? Was, the Big East was one of the Power Five like automatic qualifiers for the in the BCS era, like, and obviously they lost Miami and Boston College and Virginia Tech, and so it was made sense that they they lost that uh, that I don't know distinction, but. I don't know. I just the Pac-12 feels big time, but or I mean, I guess we kind of try to justify it as big time because it's always been one of the Power Five. But I just don't see it. Like I'm not sure. I think pro football moving to Los Angeles was the worst thing that ever happened to USC. I think I've said that before. I think that was part of the coolest thing about USC was that you were the pro team in Los Angeles. It was like a Hollywood type of thing. And now we got, they had two NFL teams. Like no one even really, they have such a kind of a fair weather fan base. It doesn't, they don't seem nearly as loyal as some of the other fan bases across the country. And the, the conference is like hinging on USC's relevance. Like USC has to be a top 10 team to even talk about the Pac-12. And so I feel like in the last few years, we've kind of, I don't know, defa- by, de- by default, put Oregon in that in, in that light. And I don't know, as, as much as people try to tell me Oregon is a powerhouse, a national title contender, like, they don't really do it on the field consistently. Like, they've four of the last five years, Oregon has finished unranked. Like, and Chris, Mario Cristobal was there for four of those years. So, I don't know. It's, like, I feel like it's, like, a narrative. It's being, like, pushed on me. Like, the Oregon is elite. Oregon is elite. Like, every year. Like, you say it enough times and it'll become true. Like, and I don't, I just don't really see it. Like, the, the Pac-12 has kind of been theirs for the taking the last few years. 
and they just haven't really taken it. I think with, with USC being in the position they are, like Oregon should be the team coming out of that conference, and they just – I don't know. I think they've disappointed. And I, I wonder I, – I wonder – if the Pac-12 can ever get those traditions back, because you know they don't. Some of those schools don't have the most football tradition. USC was by far the the, the conference powerhouse. Like even Oklahoma, uh, Big Twelve, if Oklahoma's down, there's other good teams in the conference. Like the with USC being you know just not nationally relevant for for several years now, I feel like it. I wonder if the Pac-12 will ever really recover. Well, I think getting rid of Larry Scott was priority one. Getting a better TV deal is priority two. Um, one thing that will always limit the Pac-12 is what time they're on television. So recruits, where the best recruiting grounds are, guess where they are, Matt? Florida, Texas, Georgia, Bama, South Carolina. They're not watching Pac-12 after dark. They're not dying to get to Beaverton, Oregon. They're not dying to go play in Pullman. Like, that there's going to be some limitations to what the Pac-12 can be as a whole. However, we know that they can survive. We know that USC is a just like that. You like they're already back to top five recruiting classes. Like it, it's easy. Mario Cristobal is building a recruiting hotbed. Like the Nike stuff really helps there. But there, there's just going to be limitations to what the Pac-12 can be. Like they are never going to catch the SEC. No one's going to catch the SEC. The Big Ten has the best shot, but I still this is not going to happen. Um, what they can well, be collectively, you might not catch the conference, but at least like you your solve... representative, well, at least your representative, you... like wouldn't embarrass you, kind of thing. You know, the Pac-12 gets into these games and they can play with somebody. And right now, I mean, they're big you know, teams. It's like can or- Oregon can USC? But it's can. like two years ago, Oregon. I mean, they lost to Auburn in that season opener. It's like the Auburn was like the was seventh the best team in the SEC. I mean that was still they they lost a lot like it was a close game they lost oh of course it was a it was a nail biter but that's what I'm saying it was a nail biter with like the sixth best team in the SEC and I just think like that's that's the best your conference has to offer like that's that's tough and I just I don't know I I wonder about USC well, Washington like, was in the playoff let's not forget we should th- give some credit Washington was in the playoff not long ago Chris Peterson built a powerhouse there Jimmy Lake still recruiting well. We'll see what happens. Um, they, they just got. I, I think, what, I wait, hold on. Didn't Washington just get the number one quarterback um, from the upcoming class? Brock um, yeah, son. Brock Heward's son. Yeah, yeah. He's he's a five star. I think he's yeah. Twenty twenty one or twenty twenty two. One of the two. But yeah, so there. Yeah. That guy's coming. Like there's still situations like that for the um, sons of alums and all that kind of stuff. But um, I don't know. I think. I, I'm going to say I'm not sure. That is one I'm definitely not sure. So he is 2021. And yeah. yeah, and and to correct myself, Mario Cristobal's been there for three years. So it's not Well, not this four year will be three, won't it? This will be year four this year. Will it really? Has he already been there for four years now? Yeah. So the, the fourth crazy. year was was he, he would just coach one game when uh, when Willie Taggart left. But yeah, so this he's coming up on year four interesting but yeah i'm not sure i'm not sure they'll they'll ever return to to that level like colorado is kind Wait, of hold name. on are you counting the willie taggart year where he let la- like and will in crystal ball coach one game no i'm saying i originally was oh okay being there for four years but he has been there for three years okay. and this year will be number four gotcha gotcha hmm. but yeah i don't i don't know we'll see it'll be interesting all right. Well, that's all I've got, Matt Green. Do you have anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up here tonight? Uh, that's all I got, sir. 
All right, next week we'll do a full breakdown. We're going to do these um, theme shows uh, during this offseason. I want to do a mailbag at some point um, in the next few weeks as well. Um, Matt, for for that guy down there in Dacula, Georgia, they love <laughs> it. Um, for myself up here in Knoxville, Tennessee. Hey, you're going to make me go Jim Everett on you, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to bet you don't call it Dacula again. You don't think so. <laughs> that's a good callback to uh jim i'm gonna yeah, and, yeah well the good thing is we're not in person so you can't uh fully play out that uh, situation um, just act out like we are chase get off of it <laughs> <laughs> oh simpler times simpler times for that guy like i said down there in tequila georgia matt green for myself up here in knoxville tennessee that is all we've got we'll be back the full ride next week thank you guys We're back on the Chase Stones podcast, and I'm now joined by someone I read all the time on a very good pro football and college football website, profootballfocus.com. Go subscribe there today if you have not already. Eric Eager. Eric, good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, you know, the off season sort of snuck up on all of us, but uh, it's nice to get in that groove again uh, of looking forward to the 2021 season. Yeah, uh, we still got some time, though. We still got some time. And I will say, Mike Renner, and you can tell him this um, from me personally, Big Austin, I'm a big Austin Gale guy. I'm more of an Austin Gale guy than a Mike Renner guy. But um, Mike really hurt my feelings when he had the Falcons trade out of the number four pick um, in his latest mock to with an, a division rival in the Carolina Panthers so that they could take Justin Fields. So if you could pass along that message from me that uh, – that is um, something I will not accept. And Daniel Jeremiah's uh, pick of Justin Fields just going to the Falcons at number four is acceptable. But what Mike Renner posited is uh, hurtful and should actually be taken down. Yeah, I, I'd be I'd be surprised if they traded with their division rival as well, especially given that you know Arthur Smith and uh, and Matt Rule are going to be two sort of young up and coming coaches in that division. Um, you know, probably, I mean, if things go well, squaring off for supremacy in that division, given where New Orleans is currently at and where Tampa should be, um, you know, sort of once Brady eventually retires. Absolutely. I'm excited for that. Who's not excited for the downfall of the New Orleans Saints? Um, Eric, why, why do you hate Justin Herbert so much? If there was one thing I pulled from your latest piece on PFF.com, it was <laughs> that um, you really have a vendetta against uh, the best hair in the NFL. Yeah, it's, it's really personal. I think, Mm -hmm. um, no, I just, uh, you know, Herbert, Herbert's a guy where, you know, it, it coming out of college, it was always sort of this like wanting more. He was great as a sophomore, um, junior year, not quite as good, but sort of, you know, kept the boat, uh, you know, about, you know, kept the boat from sinking. And then, you know, he came back for sort of an, you know, inexplicable reason, um, and when he came back as a senior, he didn't perform, you know, as well as this sophomore year either. Um, and so there were a lot of questions. Obviously, he had the arm strength, he had the talent, he had the athleticism, um, but the production wasn't there. So I think a lot of people, myself included, were a little low on him. I don't even think I put him in my mock draft 
you know, I didn't have him or Jordan Love in the first round. Mm. Um, just because I didn't think necessarily they were worth the risk. Now, you know, it, it's clear that especially in his first year, I was wrong. I mean, he was 13th in QBR. He was middle. To, I can't remember exactly where he was in PFF grade. Um, he had a very encouraging rookie year. Now, I think that, you know, him overcoming expectations as a rookie um, have given a lot of people, you know, beer goggles about what to expect in year two. Mm-hmm. And, and so I laid out an article on PFF.com, my reasons for thinking maybe year one was a little bit of an aberration. And obviously people are going to say, well, you didn't like Herbert to begin with, so this is just trying to double down on the same bet, which, sure, I guess you could say that. Um, but there are a number of reasons why I think Herbert in year two might not be necessarily what people believe uh, he will be. Do you think it's kind of like the inverse of what happened to Josh Allen from year two to year three? I think so. Um, you know, Allen is another one of those really toolsy guys where, you know, the, the production wasn't necessarily there in college. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a lot of people were, you know, you, you know understandably skeptical of him. Um, but yeah, I mean, in LA, the issue is, is you're losing, you know, Anthony Lynn was kind of a disaster as a head coach, but at, you know, Shane Steichen did a very good job of scheming stuff open for Herbert. Herbert almost had more yards on passes traveling 20 yards downfield than he did on passes traveling between 10 and 19 yards, which is hmm. sort of an aberration. He had a better, you know, yards per attempt when pressured than when clean, which means, yeah. you know, there were plays where he's closing his eyes and throwing the ball and there's guys open, uh, you know, for, for, you know, reasons, I think, dealing with scheme. Um, and, and you lose that when Steichen leaves uh, in the coaching change. You know, Mike Lombardi is a guy who was fired for Jim Bob Cooter in Detroit. You saw Stafford's numbers go up immediately after that happened. So I'm a little skeptical of that. Obviously, I'm a little skeptical of the fact that, you know, whenever you're better under a pressured pocket than with a clean pocket, you know, ten- generally speaking, the former regresses, the latter stays the same. Um, so th- those are the reasons. I mean, there are tons of statistical markers that would make you, make you believe that Herbert might regress in year two. Um, and not to say that he can't get better, but I, I think it might be a situation where he gets better as a player, but the production doesn't necessarily go up. Yeah, and I think that's interesting. I, just, I feel bad for a lot of these rookie quarterbacks and these first couple-year quarterbacks where it's just there's so much pressure on them to succeed right away and especially with the way team building works now right where so many teams take these guys um, or they'll build up their roster around them uh, while they have these guys on rookie contracts so they want to maximize this window before they have to pay them and get in the Jared Goff situation but like if you're a young quarterback and you go in the first round like Herbert or wherever you're like oh the clock's ticking and you read about where your roster is and you look at who you have all around you and you're like oh this is a team that should be winning now and we should be back in the AFC West uh, picture out if the Kansas City Chiefs didn't exist but we should still be in the playoffs and things like that and I uh, I don't know. They have a very short clock, it seems like. Do you think that's going to start to wear on a lot of these young quarterbacks who come into the league, especially when they start out hot? And then the idea that progress is linear, and we see that with different quarterbacks and different guys all over the place, where it's just not. Some guys will have these blips, and some guys will go down a little bit. Some guys will just shoot out of a cannon like Josh Allen in year three. Um, do you Do you worry about that at all? I do, and I think continuity is a huge deal. In the piece, I looked at all the guys that you know changed coordinators from year one to year two, and some of them changed coordinators because they performed well, and the guy ended up with a, a head coaching job. Sometimes they performed poorly, and you know the the 
the offensive coordinator leaves. And but there's a number in, and those guys, generally speaking, have not done particularly well. Um, and why do you think it, that it's is? It's just a continuity. I think, I mean, I think the NFL offense is extremely complicated. And, you know, you come in as a rookie in April, right? You don't even know who your team is in April. Um, you know, and then this past year, obviously, the pandemic, that's what makes what Herbert did so impressive, was that he was able to acclimate despite the fact he had no OTAs or mini camps. Um, but you, you, you come in late, you learn a whole new offense, the speed of the game goes really fast, you start getting to hang yourself, and they change coordinators, and all of a sudden you need to learn, in many cases, new verbiage, you need to learn new protections, you need all this stuff. It's sort of like you have a second rookie year, and so you're dealing with not only, you know, regression, which is, you know, I think named the sophomore slump, but you're also dealing with changes to your environment, and that can never be good. You look at some of the, you know, the situations where we've seen young quarterbacks have success, there's just been continuity there. You know, Buffalo, you know, has had the same coaching staff the whole time Allen was there. Um, they've, they've worked with him. They know, you know, they know his strengths and weaknesses. Obviously, Kansas City is a glaring example where, you know, they were a, a team that drafted a quarterback high that was a good team. You know, most of these teams that draft quarterbacks high are bad. And so you have also the, the weight of making a bad team good as well as making yourself good. Um, you know, and, and obviously a team like Kansas City, you're sort of threw away that first part as a barrier to Mahomes. Um, and so, yeah, it is a tough situation. And that's why, you know, my general, you know, my general opinion is that these players are going to bust. Um, and when they don't, it sort of surprises me. Interesting. Um, what do you think was the most impressive part about Justin Herbert's rookie year? Do you think it was just the fact that he was so good under pressure? And to follow that up, why do you think he was so good under pressure and so uh, mediocre when not pressured? Well, you know, I yeah, it was the pressured stuff. Obviously, the poise, like he took a lot of good hits. He, he didn't. Uh, you know, he was never rattled. Those are things that I think, obviously, if you're if you're looking at the human side of being a quarterback, those matter a ton. Um, you know, I, you know, I think I'll, some of his receivers are open a lot. You know, Keenan Allen's a great a great player, very deserving of the contract that he ended up getting um, from the Chargers early on. Uh, obviously, they had Hunter Henry, who's a good football player uh, as well. So. You know, um, to me, I think that there was a lot of good support for him on the outside. Now, his offensive line was terrible. That's part of the reason why he was second in the NFL in number of fresher dropbacks. But that's part of the big um, deal of being the Chargers quarterback is you play behind a, a bad offensive line. I think those are the rules of right. modern football. Exactly. And even if they put together a good offensive line for you, it would end up getting hurt anyway. Yeah. So what's the point? <laughs> so it, it's, yeah. And I think, you know, you know, next year the issue is is like, do, does your talent regress? Does Keenan Allen get injured? Now, Keenan Allen has far more of an injury history in people's minds than in reality. I mean, he's played almost every game for the past four years. But if he were to get hurt, Mike Williams has had injury issues. If they don't get, you know, some of their younger guys who I think played well last season, if they don't, if they regress in year two, if they Hunter Henry leaves for a free agency, you know, if 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 there aren't guys getting open. Um, in those early parts of the route, then Herbert doesn't have places to go when he's pressured, and that's you know where you can get in trouble, and that's where we've seen even the best offense in the NFL in the Kansas City Chiefs get in trouble in the Super Bowl. So that those are always the worries. That's why you know year to year you look at how a guy performs in a clean pocket. It's so much more indicative of how he'll perform in a clean pocket the subsequent year than how he performs you know in a pressured pocket. It's so much more noisy year to year, and that's 
you know, where if, if you see Herbert at 7.6 yards per pass attempt in a pressured pocket, like, you know, that could go up certainly, but it's very much more likely to go down. Uh, and if that goes into like the six and a half range, then, you know, now you're talking about a quarterback who's under seven yards pass attempt. What, uh, who did he remind you most of when you watched him this season? Who, who did you ever like jot down mentally or just in your notes of like, okay, this, this throw looked like this guy, this poise looked like this person who, who did he remind you most of? I don't know. Like, he kind of like take the best of what Joe Flacco had, and I feel like that's kind of like Herbert. Although Herbert, I think, is maybe a better version of that. But hmm. you know, Flacco is a big, you know, at, you know, early on in his career, he's a big athletic thing that can move around, and he had the deep ball that I don't think you know anybody else in the league could match. Um, and there was some, you know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, to pressure. There was just sort of an aloofness, right, and and in a good way, and that in that. You know, as a young player, things didn't, you know, sort of knock him down. And, you know, you saw that with Flacco. I mean, Flacco had four road playoff wins his first two years in the NFL. So, you know, that, that, you know, to me, I think that that's probably the one that I would go with. It's hard, though, because we're in an era of football where, like, we've just never been in this era before. Even if you go back to Flacco's rookie year in 08, the passing, you know, the, the passing infrastructure in the league was so much worse that, you know, the numbers by comparison, I look at Flacco's numbers as a rookie, he only averaged, you know, he's fine, seven yards of pass attempt, but he only had 14 touchdowns. I mean, that's just a different, it was just a different universe back then. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Last thing, we'll wrap up here, Eric. Um, This is a college question with him, and this was something I thought was super fascinating about your piece, um, was how volatile his year-over-year um, stats were at Oregon, where his sophomore year actually ended up being his best year, and took a step back junior year, and then kind of crept up a little bit in his senior year, but um, not the best kind of senior year you want to do. Um, why would you? Why do you think he was so up and down at Oregon? Do you think it was kind of like the the broader point about coordinator changes, staff changes, or do you think there is something that we need to monitor when we're looking at college quarterbacks and fans need to look at with their own teams is like, Hey, <laughs> just because they're awesome this year does not necessarily mean they're going to be awesome next year. And uh, it turns out being a quarterback is just hard. I, I think it's that. I, I think it's always hard when the, you're the best quarterback in a conference and every team is trying to give you their best game, you know, to repeat, you know, brilliance from one year to the next. That being said, I think some of it was just, you know, the, they were not giving him, uh, you know, sort of the best uh, infrastructure. You know, they weren't giving, you know, a lot of his throws. I can't remember exactly the number, but there was like a significant fraction of his passes that were behind the line of scrimmage at Oregon. So they're just not like giving him a chance to sort of showcase who he is. Um, so I think there was a lot of that. I think, you know, there was, there was some conservatism there that just like wasn't warranted uh, in hindsight, given how great he was by the time he got to the NFL. So, I, I, it's weird. I, you know, I, and I wonder if that ends up being the case here in LA, if there are signs of, uh, of creakiness, uh, you know, sort of in year two, do they, do they do what Oregon did and sort of like, you know, c- close off, uh, you know, Herbert to some of the, uh, you know, more explosive things that they did a season ago under Steichen. All right, Eric, what can we check out from you outside of this great article on PFF.com this week? Uh, well, I do the, the PFF forecast, myself yep. and George Shahuri, which is every Monday morning, every Thursday morning. Uh, we record Sundays and Wednesdays. Um, I have an article about secondary receivers. I was trying to make sense of what happened to Kansas City 
in the Super Bowl against Tampa Bay. Um, aside from the offensive line, it seemed like the offensive line was a clear idea, but uh, their, their lack of a number three target also, I think, hurt Mahomes. Um, and, yeah, that, that's, based, you know, for now, I mean, uh, the, the site as a whole, we have free agency rankings. We have, you know, as you said, a ton of mock drafts coming out. Uh, you know, even though the season is over, uh, you know, nothing sleeps at, at PFF. Go do that. Keep up the great work, my friend, and uh, we'll have to check back again soon. Thanks for having me on, Chase. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.